Before we turn uh, to the book of Joshua together, uh, please join with me as we uh, pray and ask God for his help just now. Let's pray together, friends. Lord, we come in need to you, our greatest need is to have you work in our hearts and to be reminded of your gospel goodness, your purposes for your people. Um, Our great need is to hear your voice. Um, Lord, we can say with the psalmist that your statutes, your word is wonderful to us as your people. Uh, So we pray that this morning that you would help us, uh, help us to concentrate, help us uh, to hear not from man, but from the Almighty One, the King. And we pray that you would give us that appetite just now, that real expectation, that spiritual understanding of preaching, that we would be able to to hear your voice, that you would condescend, Lord, at these moments uh, to address us and to do mighty things in our hearts. Now give us that understanding we, we desperately long for and need, and we pray in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen. Okay, so many of you, I'm sure, will be uh, familiar with the 1998 film, Saving Private Ryan. We heard of that film, Saving Private Ryan. Um, If you have not seen the film, panic not. I am not about to ruin uh, the film for you. There are no movie spoilers uh, coming up, I don't think. Um, I I remember being quite surprised by that film when I went to see it in in advance of going to the cinema uh, to see it. I had done a little bit of reading about the film. That sounds incredibly geeky, I know, doesn't it? Reading about a film before you go to the cinema to see it, but I might as well admit to that. So I'd done some reading and I thought at least that I knew the plot of the film, okay? So I certainly knew that the film told the story of Private Ryan, okay, a young soldier, World War II, who both of his brothers had been killed in combat, and so I kind of figured that the story would revolve around him, you know, the dilemma that this young soldier faces. Should he go home to console his mother, as he was allowed to do, a time that she's been bereaved, Or should he stick around and help his colleagues repel Nazi attack? I thought Private Ryan's going to be the focus of this film. It's not a ridiculous thing to assume, is it? After all, the title of the film, Saving Private Ryan, kind of, I thought, kind of gives the game away, right? Well, if you've seen this film, you'll know that that's not actually the case at all. Isn't that right? That what happens is that another character, see if I get his name right, Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, He actually assumes the main role as he leads this ragtag group of soldiers in their hunt for Private Ryan. Do you see the idea? Do you follow it? It's actually the idea of the main character in a plot coming as a bit of a surprise to us. I'm sure there's a million examples I could have used in literature, a million other examples I can use in film, but the, the idea of it being a bit of a shock to us to find around whom the story revolves, the main character of the story coming as a bit of a surprise. Well, this morning, in our time together, we're actually going to begin a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of 
Joshua, new sermon series in the book of Joshua. And perhaps it's the case that you, like so many of us in the room and at home, perhaps you don't know this book all that well, intimately. Do you know Joshua well? If not, what are you expecting? Or can I just change, tweak that question for you a little bit? Who are you assuming is the main character of this book? You're thinking, well, hang on, Andy, that's a daft question here. Does the name not give away the title of the, the book? Is this not a book about Joshua? Well, what I think we're going to see just now and over the next number of weeks is, in actual fact, the book of Joshua is a book about God, that your God, my God, is the main character of this book, that over the next number of weeks, we are going to be, and it's quite a thought really, in his word, we are going to be confronted by our God. We're going to be confronted by his power in Joshua, his holiness, his definitely confronted by his justice, and I think supremely, we're going to be confronted by how resolutely faithful our God is to his people, but also to the promises that he has made. I'm sure you see the idea. As we begin this book, we must appreciate that the main character is not Joshua, the main character is our God. So, will we dive in to this book? Will we study together the book of Joshua? Let's do that. The first thing that I think we need uh, to notice here is the unstoppable purposes of God. The unstoppable purposes of God. Now, um, I'm sure we all know the feeling, don't we? This is not just me. I hope it's not just me. That feeling where you're in conversation with someone, maybe after church, and they mention a name. They ask you if you know this name, and you know you know that name. You know you've heard it before, but you cannot quite place it. Have we all been there? You know that conversation? Oh, do you know Mrs. So-and-so? Or you've heard of Steve so-and-so, and and you know, uh, you know you know that name. You you know you've you've met that person before. You know you've encountered them at some point, but you just cannot quite place them. It's not just me, right? It's not just me, my old age, I'm sure. Well, there's something like that could happen to us this morning. Because in verse 1, you'll notice Joshua is mentioned to us. And here's the thing, in the previous five books of the Bible, okay, in what's called the Pentateuch, you and I, in our familiarity with Scripture, we have encountered Joshua before. Before we get to this book, we have met him. But I suppose the question then becomes, can we remember where? Do we, as we think about the Pentateuch, can we remember where we have encountered this, this, this guy Joshua before? I reckon if we were to go around the room, <laughs> we're not going to do this, but if we were to go around the room uh, this morning, and I'm sure people could shout out places where Joshua appears, could we do that? I'm sure we could build up, a, a, you know, where does he appear in the Pentateuch? Let's not do that, but let's think about it. Where does Joshua appear in the first five books of the Bible? Come on, let's think about it. Yes. Joshua was that character who actually went up Mount Sinai 
with Moses to receive the law, wasn't he? So Joshua was the closest aide and associate of, of Moses. Anything else, though? Now, come on, let's think about it. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Yes, what do we, what we know? Joshua is also a mighty warrior. Do we remember that? So Exodus 17, like Joshua was the guy who destroyed the Amalekites. We remember that. Anything else, folks? Come on, Joshua. Ah, uh, the obvious one. Come on. The spies. Remember Joshua? Maybe the boys and girls do. Joshua was one of the 12 spies who was sent into Canaan, wasn't he? But he was one of the only two who was able to give a, or who did give a positive report. Yes, anything else? Come on, folks. Joshua in the Pentateuch. Last one. Do we remember that Joshua had his name changed? Numbers chapter 13. Moses alters Joshua's name. So previously, he was called Hoshua, Hoshua, and he's changed to Joshua. And it's an amazing detail, actually, that Joshua is the first person in all of the Bible to have the covenant name of God, Yahweh, actually incorporated into his own personal name. So what does the name Joshua mean? Do we we know this? Do we remember it? There's two parts to it. Joshua means the Lord is salvation. The Lord saves. We have remembered where we have encountered Joshua before. Okay, fine. Now, let's move on. Where do we encounter him here as we turn into Joshua chapter 1? Well, I guess we could say that there's a bit of a solemn atmosphere in St. Peter's this morning, in a sense, because it's almost, as we come to Scripture, really it is almost like we're at a funeral. Because look at verse 1 with me closely. Where do we meet Joshua? We meet him, look at the first words, after the death of Moses. Now, at this point, please, friends, uh, Allow me just to speak to the younger people just for a moment so that I, so we take the children with us through, through this. So, so, boys and girls, I just want to speak to you for a second about this character here. What's his name? Moses. Okay, now we've all heard of Moses, haven't we? Well, now, I want you to think about how you think about Moses. Because I'm, I'm really, really desperate that you don't make the mistake that I made for years when I was thinking about Moses. This is how I thought. Maybe you think like this. I thought Moses was just another Old Testament guy. And I just thought Moses was just another in the long, long line, a list of men that, that God used in the Bible. Maybe we can think like that. Now, I want you to appreciate this, that actually in the Old Testament, Moses was quite a special figure. The rest of you, you're with me on that, aren't you? What do we know about Moses? We know that not only... Did Moses have a special character? Ready for this? The Bible tells us that Moses was the most gentle man in all of the world. The most meek man in all of the planet. So not only a special character, what else do we know about Moses? We know that Moses had a special role. So he was the Old Testament prophet par excellence. You know, the Old Testament prophet. In fact, friends, look at the text. Now look at first one and look at the title that, that is given to this man Moses here. Do you, do you see? What is he called here? 
We could just, we could skim this, couldn't we? The servant of the Lord. What do we think? What do you think about that? You know, maybe we think, oh, that's just a common title, isn't it? Aren't loads of people in the Bible called the servant of the Lord? After all, how does Philippians begin? Paul and Timothy, servants of, servants of Christ Jesus. This is a common thing. No. What we need to appreciate is that that is a lofty title in the Old Testament scriptures. A very, very special title. One reserved for, for only a handful of people. Do you understand this? That Joshua does not receive this title, servant of the Lord, until right at the end of this book, right towards the end of his life. Do you see the point that I'm making to you? Who is Moses? Moses is special. Who is Moses? Moses is special and special in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the people. And now, armed as we are with that bit of information about Moses, can I ask you just to enter the book Can I ask you, how do you think the people are feeling at the beginning of Joshua? Think about what we've just seen. Moses has died. I mean, that colossus, a spiritual colossus is gone. I mean, the person who has led the people for, for year after year after year, the person who had this intimate bond, this connection, this relationship with God, he has died. It's not too much to assume, is it? That the people here are perhaps slightly anxious. He's gone, he's dead, the people worried. What does the future hold? Well, in light of that, look at how God speaks to Joshua in verse 2. Isn't this amazing? If you have a look at it, it's, it's, it's like this. Moses, my the servant of the Lord is dead barely a breath and Joshua go get them ready prepare do, do you see did you, you feel the momentum of, of the text there's barely a beat that is missed here like okay Moses death is dealt with with solemnity and propriety at the end of Deuteronomy but here it's a case of right we are moving on Moses is dead Joshua get them ready there is a momentum friends do you see the lesson we see here at the beginning of this book that the purposes of God are irrepressible that if God has a plan his purposes are absolutely unstoppable that Israel in the Old Testament was not like Tesla <laughs> and it wasn't like Apple you know, shares, share prices plummet if there's any uncertainty with their CEO, you know? Israel's not like that. Why not? Because the almighty and eternal God was in control. He had a plan to prosper Israel and nothing, nothing at all could stand in his way. Not even the death of a man, a giant like Moses. Now, there are obviously a number of ways we could apply this principle. Isn't that right? God's purposes for his people are irrepressible. I actually just really only just now want to make mention of the most obvious. Maybe you can see it already. I want you to consider your former minister uh, just for a moment. Do you, do you recognize perhaps uh, the parallels here 
I mean, David Robertson, he led this congregation for what is an unusually long length of time in free church circles. He led the people, just as Moses led the people for so long, so, so David did. And, and I don't know David all of that well. I, you know, I met him a couple of times at a presbytery, a few conversations, but from all accounts, surely it's fair to say that like Moses, David was a godly man. David is a, 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 a man like Moses who is concerned for the glory and for the honor of his God, and, and maybe we see where the parallels go, do we? David is not dead, as far as I know. But he is gone. Now, let's be very, very careful. What's the application? Is that about me? Now, you, you know, new Joshua, you know, new leader. There is absolutely no comfort to be found there. Surely you see what's happening just now. That scripture, Joshua 1, instructing you instead to look to your God. To look to him for comfort. I know firsthand how difficult it can be when your minister moves. I, I know that there's uncertainties that come with that, isn't there? Naturally there are. Our, our spiritual leader goes, what is that going to mean for our congregation? What's that going to mean for my family? What's that going to mean for my own walk with Jesus that this man goes? But surely you, you see what God is showing you here. Listen to me carefully. If you are a Christian this morning, God has purposed to spiritually prosper you. And what can you know for sure? He will do that. God has determined, if you're a Christian, determined that he will spiritually progress you. He has determined that he will spiritually protect you. God has determined from all time that he will spiritually perfect you into the likeness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we know as Christians? Nothing can stand in his way. So not an illness, not your advancing years, not an attack from the evil one. Nothing, nothing can stop our God, not even the departure of a beloved spiritual leader. We see here the unstoppable purposes of God. The second thing that we must notice here, though, is the unfailing promises of God. Do you see the movement? We move from purposes that God has to the promises of God, the unfailing promises of God. Okay, if you are a parent in the room, or you're a grandparent, you know I'm sure this situation very well. Uh, even, if you've, yeah, even if you've been a babysitter, you'll know it. It's time for the kids' bed. <laughs> it's Time for the bedtime story. Okay, but there's a slight problem. There's a wee hiccup. Um, you haven't done it in a few days. Okay, somebody else has been doing it. The, your spouse or 
babysitter has been doing the story, and so you're, you're not sure where they've left off. Oh, and you know the situation. The kids are tired, and they're getting a bit hyper. Maybe one of them's crying, and you know you've got to get this story read. Uh, and so what do you cry out? If you, you know, you can tell that this is the voice of experience here. What do you cry out? You cry at the kids, guys, where are we in the story? Guys, where are we in the story? Well, I suppose, in a way, it's a little bit like that for us right now. Because, yes, we've established what? That Moses has died. But we've also just established that the book of Joshua is a kind of it's a continuation of the Pentateuch, isn't it? Like it's a continuation of that storyline that's woven through Scripture. So you see what we have to ask at the moment. As we open our Bibles, we turn to Joshua, we cry out, don't we? Where are we? In the story, God's redemptive story. Well, maybe, the honest truth is, maybe you know that really intimately, really well. You know the storyline here. Maybe you don't. So let's chart in just a few seconds. I've got a couple of questions for you, rhetorical questions. One, think about the earlier reading. One, way back in Genesis, God gave Abraham something. What did God give Abraham? We, know, we all know the answer. God gave promises, covenant, committed promises to Abraham. We're all on the same page. We all know that. Second question, though, what was the nature of those covenant promises? Now, there's different facets and aspects to those covenant promises. What did God promise Abraham? We know this, do we? Remember it? God promised Abraham would be a father. Do we remember that? A father of great nation. Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants. It's the stars in the sky, this offspring, this, this land of Israel. That's one aspect of anything else, the covenant promises. Do, can we remember? Do we, do we know these? Yeah, we do. God promised that it would be through Abraham's offspring that God would bring blessing to all of the world. What a promise that is, isn't it? Anything else? Now, make sure everyone's with me here. Anything else? We know it, don't we? We know where I'm going. God also promised Abraham that he would give to his descendants, to Israel, a land. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know Scripture, you would probably agree with me on this, that that land that is promised by God was not easily acquired by Abraham's offspring. That's fair to say, isn't it? Think about it. Huge descendants, this massive people, Israel. But what happens? They are enslaved in Egypt, first of all. Then what happens? There's the exodus. They cross the Red Sea, and man alive, they're so close to the promised land, aren't they? So close, they can even send some spies in to Canaan, but what happens? Oh no, they rebel against God and they are forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years. Well, friends, if you bear in mind that backdrop to the story, and if you appreciate, when you open the book of Joshua here this morning, do you know where the people are? They are camped the east of Jordan, on the plains of Moab. Do you know what that means? They're camped and they can look across the Jordan and they can see the promised land. If you bear that in mind, isn't it marvelous to look to verse 2 and to see what God says? So let's do that. 
even the the younger ones. Look to verse 2. Think about the the history that we've just gone through. Look at verse 2. What does God say to Joshua? Can Can I paraphrase? In effect, God says, the time has come. Doesn't he? He says, now this is the moment. Get ready across the Jordan. Think about that. This is the moment. You know, hundreds of years have passed since God spoke to Abraham. And think about all of the, the material, the water under the bridge since then. Think about the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs. And this is the very moment the people of Israel are about to inherit the land. Please hear this as I read it out. That the function of this book that we're about to study is yes to detail how the people of Israel came to be in the promised land, into Canaan, yes. More than that, the function of this book is to show that as a fulfillment of the covenant promise of God. This book is not just about showing how the people got into Canaan. This book shows you that this is a fulfillment of the covenant promise of God. What does this book teach us? It teaches you, Christian friend, that God's promises are sure. They are steady. God's promises are secure. God's promises to his people, they stand and they stand firm. Now, that's great, I think, for us. That's marvelous. We have a strong foundation as God's covenant people. But there's actually a couple of details that I want to point you to at this this moment in time. Just a couple of things for you to notice. So the first is the structure of the book, which always tends to sound a bit dull, right? Doesn't it? I'm going to talk to you about the structure of the, or the arrangement of the book, but there's something here that's marvelous and ingenious. So if you would have this section open in front of you, let me point out something to you. Now, see, right at the start of the book of Joshua, what the author does, almost without you noticing or me noticing, almost without us noticing, what he does is he tells you the structure of the whole of this book. That's an amazing thing. He telegraphs to you how this book is arranged. Let let me show you what I mean. If you look at verse 2, do you notice there's the mention of the crossing of the Jordan? Verse 2. Then verse 3, there is mention, depends on the translation you have, but there's mention of the giving of the land or the conquering of the land in verse 3. Now stick with me in verse 4. Do you notice that there's mention of the area of the land or the divisions of the land? Now, uh, fine you say, but understand what God, what the author is doing there is mirroring the structure, the coming arrangement, the threefold structure of the book. Stick with me. So chapters 1 to 5 of Joshua, that detail, the crossing of the Jordan. Do you see? So chapters 1 to 5, that's verse 2. Then chapter 6 to 12 of Joshua, that's the conquering of the people, God giving the enemies into the hands of the people. So that's verse 3. And then chapter 13 
to the end of the book, pretty much. That's the cutting up or the allotting of the land. Do you see it? Isn't it quite remarkable? It's quite ingenious that the author here, right at the start of the book, he intimates to you the threefold structure of what is to come. That might not help us this morning. It will certainly help us as we work through part of the book. So let's find the structure. The second detail I want you to consider much more, much more important, is what the land, the land represents. Because um, I'm not daft, I don't suppose. Um, I realise that some in the room and some at home might be asking this morning, you might be asking the question, why Joshua? Has that crossed your mind? I mean, this is, in a, in a sense, you know, this is the first morning sermon series that I'm going to do at St. Peter's, right? You, you can see what we've done. We try to look at different genres over the last few weeks, different types of preaching and handling scripture. So this is the first sermon series in the morning, right? Big sermon series. Why Joshua? Maybe, you know, you're asking perhaps, why not? Come on. Why not the parables of Jesus? You know, why not? Why not go to Mark's gospel? Why why, you know, why go to Joshua? You know, this Old Testament narrative, you know, thousands of years ago and a, a people far off and distantly removed and I say, well, why Joshua? Maybe a legitimate question. To answer it, allow me to defend myself in a sense. To answer it, I want you to appreciate the problem here of sorts. Please listen. The problem is that in the book of Joshua... The promise of the land is never fully realized. Now, does everybody follow that? I wonder if the boys and girls, if you can listen to me and think about that. So I'll say it again, and I'll explain it. So in the book of Joshua, the promise of the land that God's given to Abraham and is here, the promise is never fully realized. Now, what does that mean? Do we, do we understand it? It means that the people of Israel in this book never come to occupy all of the land. I mean, you've got the dimensions. They never occupy the whole of the land. In addition to that, the enemies, the Canaanites in this book, although they're defeated and conquered and God gives the land, the Canaanites are never fully dispossessed of the land. Did you see that the, the promise, that covenant promise here is never fully realized. Now, what do we say as a congregation to that? We say, well, why not? Why is it not fully realized? I want you, if you don't hear anything else, if you don't hear this bit, perhaps the rest of the sermon series will, will fall in deaf ears. So you need to, to hear this. Why, does it, why is it not fully realized? Listen, it's because the promise of the land was always intended to point to something greater. The promise of the land given to Abraham, seen here, was always intended to point beyond the land to something better, something brighter, something spiritual. Now, what, what do we say? We say, well, well, to what? The promise of the land to Abraham was to point to something spiritual, something greater than this physical earth and dust. To what? Well, this is what I need you to do. I need you to pick up your Bibles, and I need you to rush to Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 8, as quick as you can. Let the children see it. Folks at home, do the same. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. We're asking, what? The land was not fully realized? This land of rest is not fully realized? Why not? To what does it point us? Hebrews 4, verse 8. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, if they had fully realized this promise of God would not have spoken later about, look at the words, about another day. Look at how he goes on. About another land of rest, another Sabbath rest. Do you see the idea? If not, listen carefully to me. The promise of the land from the very beginning was always intended to point to the gospel of God. Did you hear it? The promise of the land, even to Abraham, was always intended to be understood as a gospel promise, a promise of the gospel. And do you see what that means for us at St. Peter's? Do you see what it means for the sermon series? It means that as you and I study the book of Joshua, as we look at these people crossing the Jordan, as we see them coming into the land of rest, we are given a picture of our own spiritual experience. As we look at them crossing the Jordan, coming into God's rest, to that land, to God, we see a picture of our own salvation. We see a picture of the spiritual realities that are ours as the covenant people and all by grace. And if that isn't enough this morning to stir you and to enthuse you for the book of Joshua, I only have to ask you this, who is it that leads us? (laughs) Who is it that leads us into the rest of God, to the land of God? Come on. As Joshua leads the people here. What is the Greek form of his name? We know it, don't we? The one who leads us today is Jesus. The one who leads us at this very moment is the one whose name means the Lord. The Lord is salvation. The one who leads us just now, the one we will come to learn more about here, is the one in whom all of the covenant promises of God find their yes and amen. Are we asking, why Joshua? Why Joshua? Don't you see it? Here in this book, we will be confronted with our present reality, some of the battles that we face today, but we will also see what is to come to us in the new heavens, in the new earth, that land that awaits, and all by the blood of Jesus. So we see the unstoppable purposes and we see the unfailing promises of God, and then we close with the unshakable presence of God, the unshakable presence of God. Uh, Friends, do do you like to think of yourself as having a good imagination? I think some of the creative people at St. Peter's, the musicians, the artists, the designers, engineers, I'm sure you like to think of yourself as having a good imagination. I think we probably know the real truth, right? We know that it's their kids that tend to put us to shame, isn't it? When it comes to having a really good imagination, you guys in here, you guys have got a far better imagination uh, than the rest of us. Regardless, okay? If you can picture Joshua just now. So if you can put yourself into his size nines, okay? His, His sandals, if you like. I wonder if you can imagine how Joshua might be feeling. Now, bear in mind everything that we just talked about and everything we've been seeing. He's just learned what? He's just learned that after hundreds of years, 
He's going to be the one to lead the people across the Jordan. More than that, what's he just learnt? He's just learnt that he is the one who's going to be faced with overcoming the Canaanites and all of these enemies. How is he feeling? Surely it's okay to assume that he might be slightly trepidatious, slightly fearful about this next leg of the journey. Well, if you bear that in mind, isn't it marvelous to read verse 5? Do you see? What does God do in verse 5? He promises Joshua. God promises his presence. Now, let me turn that over to you. What do you think that really means for Joshua? God saying to him, I'm going to be with you. What do you think that looks like? Do you think that's God saying, see, when you go across the Jordan and lead these people, you'll be a little bit more aware of a spiritual presence with you? Is that the sort of thing that we're talking about? Or that God, if Joshua gets in real trouble, God will, you know, I'll sort you out. I'll, I'll win an occasional victory for you. Is that what we're thinking? I'd ask you to read it again, verse 5. But remember, it's Joshua. Look what it says. Do you see it? As I was with Moses. Remember what we said right at the start about Joshua. Can you imagine him hearing that? Think about it. Like Joshua was the one who had first-hand experience of God's interaction with Moses and Sinai. Joshua was there. He saw that. Think about it. Joshua is the one who has seen the very cloud of God's presence descend on the tabernacle. God speak, what was it, face to face with Moses. Joshua has seen it. Joshua is the one who is fully aware of this title. Moses was the servant of the Lord. Joshua hearing this, that I will be with you as I was with Moses. What do you think? Surely there's joy. Surely this grants Joshua courage for this task at hand. It fills him with, he's invigorated for this commission. Well, as we close this morning, what I long for you to understand and hear, if you are a Christian in this room, I long for you to understand not that the same promise applies to you in this room and to you at home. No. What I long for you to appreciate if you're a Christian is that today, this side of the cross, you have something far greater, far richer, and far more beautiful even than this. Now, there are, listen to me, there are two places in Scripture to consider. You don't have to look them up. You can check them later when you go home, but hear them. The first is John 15. Now, you ready for this? Jesus is speaking here to you. He's speaking to his people, his followers. Now, listen and bear in mind what we've said about Moses. Listen to what Jesus says to us. He says, I will no longer call you my servants. Do you see now? Now that we bear in mind this Old Testament lofty title, I will no longer, the Lord says, I will no longer call you my servants. And he dispenses with that lofty title. And how does he, what does he replace it with? Jesus says to us, instead, I will call you my friends. Like, do you see? I mean, do you, do you feel the, the import, the significance of this? 
Friend, the connection you have with God, the relationship you have with God, the intimacy you have with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit dwelling in your heart, this side of Calvary is an even greater, more profound connection you have with God than even a man, a colossus like Moses. But I said two portions of Scripture And the second is found at the end of Matthew's gospel, because surely it is the case this morning, in this room and at home, as we have read together Joshua 1, 1 1-5, surely all of you, if you know scripture well, all of you have had a little bell go off in your head. Isn't that right? Joshua 1, 1 1-5. Surely you read this and you think, wait a minute, hang on a second, this language seems somewhat familiar to you. Isn't that correct? Think about what happens here. God commissions Joshua to do what? To cross into the land of rest, into the land of of promise, to lead the people. And what does God say to him? He says, you do this, I commission you, and I will be with you. I will be with you. Does it not ring a bell? Does it not sound familiar to you? Friends, what do we read at the end of Matthew's gospel? We have our God commission you. God commissions St. Peter's. God commissions his church. What does he say? He says, go make disciples. Go, as he says to Joshua, go. Go make disciples of all nations. But what is that in effect? God commissions us to lead people and to lead them to where there is rest, to lead the people to God, to lead people to his presence. And what is it that God says to you there? What does Jesus say? He says to you, his friend, and I will be with you. This task seems insurmountable, but I will be with you always. Jesus says, I will be with you in this commission. I will be with you to the very ends of the age. I will be with you. Surely as this promise must, the promise of presence must have galvanized Joshua, surely it's the same for us as superiors today. And do you see what can happen? Like we can go out into our lives now. We can go out into Dundee and we can seek to make disciples this week. We can seek to try and tell people about Jesus. How can we do that? And we're so weak and so feeble because it's not in our own strength. And it's not of our own steam. It's not of our own back. But God is with us, and God will accomplish that work through us. Sometimes my job is a beautiful job. This morning I get to stand and say with confidence to the covenant people, you go, and God is with you. Whatever, whatever is to come this week, whatever you face this week, God is with you as friend. God is with you in Christ. And we end with this. I hope you would agree, friends, that this morning in his word here, we are confronted by our God. Isn't that right here in Joshua 1? We are confronted by our God. His purposes, his promises, his presence is here. Well, one day, 
Every one of us. So that's the youngest to the oldest in the room. And that's every single person who is watching this. And that's today on the live stream. And it's later today. And it's maybe watching it this evening or watching it in 10 years from now, perhaps just stumbling upon this. Every single one of us will encounter God in a different way. Every one of us one day will encounter God as he is seated on his throne of judgment. So my question for you is, are you ready for that? Are you ready to encounter the God of judgment? Today, are you in rebellion against God? Do you stand in condemnation? Or are you the friend of Christ? Are you covered by his blood? If you are not covered by his blood, then I suppose my appeal to you is very predictable this morning, isn't it? Because I would implore you today to cross the Jordan. I would implore you to come into God's land of promise, his land of rest. Will you not this morning repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Come to Jesus Christ in repentance and know, wait for it, know the saving rest of the leading man. Know the saving rest of the main character. Come to Jesus Christ and know the eternal saving rest of God. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you for your covenant promises. We thank you that they were not simply uh, promises for an ancient people. We thank you for the covenant of grace. We thank you that uh, Abraham looked ahead to that heavenly city. We thank you, Lord God, that as we study the book of Joshua, surely we will see from your goodness and from your grace more about what is ours in Christ and even what is ahead of us as your people. Lord God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, that we might go out even this week and make disciples and all knowing that you are with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.